those who could make it here, and I wish some who, due to health and age and various issues, cannot be here even though they would like to. A couple of announcements uh, regarding tomorrow. First of all, we're having a 9 o'clock service. Again, for you on the telephone line, at 9 o'clock our time, we're going earlier because we have a field trip planned up to look at some petroglyphs and some geographical uh, things which seem to have great significance uh, at this time. So, uh, some amazing things to see. I think I can show you the wall of ancient Jerusalem before it became desolate for many generations. Uh, as the scriptures say that it would have become and no one living there. Also petroglyphs showing uh, the history of Israel written right in the rock and uh, various other things that uh, seem very, very important at this time here at the end of the age when God is revealing an awful lot of things that are going to be important to the end time work. So anyway, we're, we'll go on that uh, trip tomorrow. So, services at 9 o'clock our time, and immediately after, uh, we'll have a brief period. You can go home and change clothes, get in something more comfy, and probably it'd be better to bring a lunch. Uh, if we stop somewhere and go in and buy lunch, we'll wind up taking two hours and and uh, so on, and it'd be better just to, to bring some grub along and eat as you feel as we travel and go from place to place to look at various things. Uh, I think that would work out time-wise a lot better. A lot to see. Uh, a little walking, not a great deal of walking involved. Uh, so some of you, I know, have trouble getting around, would not be able to see some things. But I think before you got so stove up here, you saw them before anyway. So this will be a review for some and, and something new for others. But I think you'll find it intriguing. Uh, Gloria here's husband is not in the church, does not understand anything about it. And he went on a tour when I took her uh, to see some of these things. And it was obvious that he was not accepting a lot of it, but he said it was a good presentation. <laughs> he was tactful. <laughs> you, you pre I don't believe it, but you presented it well. Uh, but uh, there's an awful lot there to be presented, and it's it's hard not to present it well because it really it speaks for itself. But he's not uh, he wasn't of a mind to see some things, and I understand that, and I don't have a problem with that. But the whole world will know soon, and we'll see some scriptures that are going to show that. Anyway, uh, that's for tomorrow, and then the following day. Uh, we'll have services again at 11 o'clock. That's on Monday the 9th. But Sunday tomorrow at 9 o'clock. And also we have the breakfast potluck. Let's not forget that at 8. Uh, so we'll have breakfast, then a service, then change clothes, grab your lunch, and we're out of here. Let's let's try to be back here as, uh, as close to 11 or even before as we can. Service should be over by 10.30, and that gives us a half hour to go change, get lunch together, and, and get back here, and uh, we'll be on our way. All right, we have some special music today. It is entitled, Behold Your God, 
again by Gloria Andresa Moss. We gather today to consider a time when peace and prosperity and security will come on the earth uh, around us as we keep it in type. There is tumult. Uh, maybe you haven't kept up or maybe you've been able to, but Hurricane Nate is now approaching the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's moving very rapidly, actually. Maria and Harvey moved like seven, six, seven, eight miles an hour, and this one's going at the rate of 25 miles an hour. And it's already a Category 1, and they it's on the almost up to a 2. So they expect winds of 105 miles an hour with gusts to 120 when it hits. And it appears now it's going to come right up the mouth of the Mississippi, uh, maybe hit Biloxi directly. Uh, of course, New Orleans, Biloxi, and Mobile are right there close together, so they'll all have some effect from it. But uh, with the increasing wind, they're now expecting the, the storm surge to go from 7 feet up to 11 feet. Uh, and if it hits at high tide and you've got an 11-foot surge, uh, that could be devastating. If it hits at low tide, it's not quite as big a deal. Uh, well, still bad, but... <laughs> If it hits at high tide and then you get 11 feet on top of high tide, uh, it could be pretty nasty. So we can sit here in beautiful weather and relatively peace at the moment, uh, talking about the peace that is to come to the world, but we are still in a world of tumult. And some of the tumult we've already talked about uh, that is going to be coming it isn't pretty. But uh, yesterday we were talking about the various times here at the end when Christ is going to go back and forth between heaven and earth to fulfill uh, quite a few prophecies and things that need to be accomplished. And I had departed from Zechariah 14 where we started and went back to Revelation and other places to show you uh, the different events that occurred on the different times that he would be coming. He was coming for different purposes several times. We've, I don't know that we didn't, con well, we just never considered. We always just looked to what everybody calls the second coming. And that was as far as our vision went. But when you examine the scriptures carefully, you find that he comes back and forth several times for different purposes. The so-called second coming of Christ was only aimed at the Feast of Trumpets or the seventh trump when the first resurrection would occur. But he comes to make war and he comes to bring the new heavens and the new earth, so several different times he comes. And we can see some of that in Zechariah 14, so I want to go back there to begin. Uh, we're kind of at the end of the story here. Christ's return and the beginning of the setting up of the millennium, which is what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. So perhaps it's appropriate that we're considering the end of the story first. But once we finish up this section, I'm going to go back and show the role of the church in the end time events leading up to the millennium. That's the thrust of this series, ultimately, is to let us focus on and review what the church has to do, because we have a very great part in what has to transpire between the time, between now and the time that Christ returns. But let's examine a little bit more here in uh, Zechariah 14 before we get there. 
the day of the Lord comes, and your spoils shall be divided in the midst of you. So he's talking about that period of time at the end of the age when Christ begins to intervene in the affairs of Satan and man, and preparing to set up his kingdom. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Now, we have to realize that Jerusalem at that time will be the headquarters of the world-ruling, New World Order, beast power, and the false prophet. So when God's people flee at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, three and a half years before the setting for Zechariah 14, the beast and false prophet will take over Jerusalem, they will move their headquarters there, and they will re-inhabit it. So when Christ comes uh, to create a battle, it will be against those who have taken over his holy city. And that's what he's talking about here. Verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Now, we reviewed that yesterday in Revelation 19, because the seventh trump has already occurred. Christ has taken his people up, married his church, and then Revelation 19, it says when he comes back to fight on a horse with his vesture dipped in blood and the sword, that all of his saints are with him. So they're coming back with him for this battle that's being talked about here in chapter 14 of Zechariah. So he'll come down at the site of the true Jerusalem, and there he will fight the beast and the false prophet. It shows he'll take them by the neck and throw them into a lake of fire there in Revelation 19 as well, end of the chapter. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. So that's the first time he actually lands on earth, is when he comes back to put down the powers that are ruling the earth at that time. Now whether he does when he comes back and dwells with the church and the two witnesses before that uh, is an unknown. I don't know how much his presence will be shown or, or exactly what form it will take. The scripture does not elaborate, so I'll not speculate too much on that. But in this case, he comes back to put down uh, the powers that be. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Uh, ironically, the Mount of Olives that they call the Mount of Olives in the Middle East is just across, across a small draw from the city wall. It's like 100 yards if that, small, you cross the street, the small bridge, and then you start up this little hill, and they call that the Mount of Olives. Well, in the Bible, it talks about, what was it, 600 furlongs or something like that, I forget the exact figure, uh, from Bethany to Jerusalem, and Bethany was on the Mount of Olives. That worked out, I figured it out and looked it up on Google Maps, or uh, it's about a mile and three quarters, the Mount of Olives is from Jerusalem, according to Scripture. And the mountain that we will see tomorrow is due east of the wall of Jerusalem, one and three-quarters miles. They fit the Bible, whereas over there, it doesn't fit at all. I've been there, I've walked it, I know what it's like. It's, it's just across the street. It's not a mile and three-quarters away, as Scripture says. I don't have time to go and improve all that. Just, just as a note here, though, that he is going to stand on the Mount of Olives which is east of Jerusalem. And the mountain will cleave 
in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Uh, half the mountain shall remove to the north and half toward the south. So you have Jerusalem here, and east of it, a mile and three quarters, is the Mount of Olives. And it's going to split with half of it going north and half of it going south. So there'll be a very wide valley going east and west. Now to the west, it will go out into the Great Basin. To the east, it will go through Parowan, a little town, and split that mountain range that goes north to south in Utah in half and go to the east. A great valley going east and west. Or north, uh, yeah, east and west. So it would have to split those mountains in two. The point being that <clears throat> from the throne of Christ, once it's set up, waters will go out and water the earth. Now, the scientists tell us that there was a huge basin to the east of these mountains in Utah that once covered that whole area with, with sea, seabed. And the same was true on the west. The Great Basin, the, I mean, all the scientists recognized that that was once covered with water. The, the Great Salt Lake was the upper end of it, and it's just tiny now compared to the water that went through the Great Basin and all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they found a Phoenician vessel there by the uh, Salton Sea in Southern California near Palm Springs buried. So it had been, there had been ocean-going vessels up into California uh, in the past. And, of course, you find seashells and shark's teeth and all kinds of stuff all over the western United States. So it's been underwater very clearly. <clears throat> but anyway, it says that that mountain will split. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains. The valley of the mountains means there's a valley. That's what I said. It splits those mountains, and the valley then goes through the mountains. Now, it's not talking about God's people fleeing. Who is he coming against? All those who have taken over Jerusalem and are ruling it at that time. And he says, I'm going to come down and put my foot on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split. And the only way you're going to have out is to run down the valley that's just been made, <laughs> if you think you can get away, I think is the, is the uh, impetus of this. Yeah, you'll flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with you. So see, here's another indication that this is not his first coming, because his first coming is to resurrect the saints. This time, they're with him when he comes down on his white horse to make battle against these people. And they come with him, since they'll ever be with him, as First Thessalonians 4 tells us. Uh, a comment I wanted to make back, let's go back to verse 3 for a moment. He says, the eternal shall go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. It doesn't explain what that is. Uh, my margin has a note back to Exodus 15 where he conquered uh, Mitzrium and their armies in the Red Sea. And I, well, that's a possibility. That is one time that he fought that the Bible records. But my overall thought here would be, when was the day of battle? 
when Satan rebelled against God, and they had a huge uh, battle in the skies for control of the universe, that's the real battle where Christ went to battle against Satan. So he may be referring back to that, and this time it will be to put down all the kingdoms and governments of the earth. So it'll be a world war, if you will. Their headquarters will be at Jerusalem. And all the nations, all the peoples of the world will have representatives there. So uh, I think that might fit it a little better up there. Anyway, let's go on down. Uh, the saints come with him to fight this battle. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be, shall be known to the eternal, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. <laughs> and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. So here it transitions to yet another return of Christ, uh, as we read in Revelation 21 and 22. When the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven... And it says in that chapter, we didn't go on and read it all, but it says the, the Father and the Son will be the light of it. It will be neither darkness nor light, but they will be the light and they will be the temple of it. And it says there at the beginning then of chapter 22 that a river will come out from the bottom of the throne and bring life to the rest of the world, to all the nations. So here you're talking about the last return and this time it's the Father and the Son at the beginning of the millennium to set up the kingdom. He had to come with us to put down the nations of the world that still remained. And as soon as he puts them down, then he and the Father and the Bride come down to rule the children that are left alive on the earth. So it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be, or year-round. I, I puzzled for a long time over what the former sea and the hinder sea were, so I looked it up. The former sea is uh, the eastern sea. Now, the hill of Jerusalem, as you'll see tomorrow, sticks up. And there's a lake bed on either side of it. Now remember in Jerusalem, Nehemiah got real upset because the Gentiles were fishing and bringing the fish into Jerusalem to sell them on the Sabbath. Uh, so there was a lake on either side of the hill of Jerusalem where they could fish and bring fresh fish into the city. Now over in the Middle East, the only place you can fish really is the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is about what, 60, as I recall, 60, 70 miles north and east of Jerusalem. And they didn't have refrigerated trucks. So you had to haul your fish from Galilee uh, all the way down there, uh, and they would smell like fish in three days that it took to do that. Uh, it's about 40 miles, I think, from that Jerusalem to the Mediterranean, so you still would have quite a walk and no ice. Uh, to get your fish to market. <laughs> up here, there is a seabed or a lake bed on either side, and it's a short walk up to where the city of Jerusalem was. 
One's called the former sea, one's called the hinder sea. So the former is to the east, and the water is going to come out of the throne to the east. And I suspect that was the original Sea of Galilee, was the former sea on the east of the hill of Jerusalem. And then on the west side, you have a much bigger lake, miles and miles across, which was the Hinder Sea. It was behind it or to the west of Jerusalem. But uh, those seas, those beds are going to be filled back up. I've seen the western side get, oh, about a mile of water across it when we had some really heavy spring rains one year. <laughs> so they're going to fill back up. And the Eternal shall be king over all the earth, and that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. So, indeed, it's talking about the time then when the Father and the Son come down with the heavenly Jerusalem. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate to the corner of the gate and from the Tower of Hananiel to the king's wine presses. So there's going to be a change in topography there. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So Christ and the saints putting down the last uh, rebellion of mankind uh, will be it until after the millennium, when Satan is turned loose for a short time. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Eternal will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives, it'll split, and their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. I, for one, do not want to stand up against Christ when he returns. <laughs> I hope to be with him when he returns, and not one of the victims of those who rebel against him, because this is a... pretty final kind of a sentence. It shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the eternal shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. So Christ is going to be in charge, but there will also be others fighting. And so shall be the plague of the horse, the mule, the camel, the ass, and all the beasts that shall be in these uh, tents uh, at this plague. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles is singled out here now, they'll come during Passover. They'll come during uh, at Pentecost, three times a year, as the Scriptures say. Well, why does he single out tabernacles here? Because it will be in the fall, and the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennium as symbolism. So he had to use the Feast of Tabernacles here as an example of the millennium since that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. We come here to celebrate the time when the whole world will have peace, safety, and security. 
the bride will have already been given immortality, and she will have no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more death. Now, that is not the case with the people during the millennium. Isaiah 65 shows they'll live a hundred years and die. So, there'll still be death on the earth. There'll still be a certain amount of sorrow. There'll be a temptation to sin, but we'll be there to say, "Uh uh-oh, no, don't go that way. This is the way, walk you in it. So, there's a difference between the bride, who is now immortal and cannot suffer any more trouble, and those who are left on earth who still do have a certain amount of sorrow. However, the whole earth will be at peace, and nation will not be warring against nation. And people will be becoming converted and begin to walk in God's ways instead of carnal human ways. So, it will be a tremendous change from what we see today. And if there are those rebels who will not come up, verse 17, of the families of the earth to Jerusalem worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So there's another example that there will be some, there'll still be some pain on earth. Uh, it will get better and better as time goes on. It won't start out totally peaceful because there'll still be some people sitting back saying, oh yeah, I don't think so. And then they don't get any rain. And then after a while they begin to think so. Uh, And then they will come to keep the feast. So it will get more and more peaceful as people accept that the Father and the Son truly are going to rule the world in peace. And rebelling against them isn't going to do you a bit of good. This shall be the punishment of Mitzrayim, or Egypt, and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it will wind up that everyone ultimately will. Okay? In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the eternal. So even the jingle of the bridles and the reins are going to be done in a peaceful way. Holiness to the eternal. Now, the reason I think that he uses that is that horses in the Bible are one of the main uh, weapons of war. So, in the past, hearing the horses jingle and the bells and the various things meant an army was approaching. And here, it'll be holiness to the eternal. No more war. No more horses being used for war. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Uh, Cooking pots. Everybody will have plenty to eat, and they'll be sanctified like the bowls before the altar. They won't run dry. Uh, They'll be taken care of. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness to the eternal of hosts. Every cooking fire, every kitchen... People are going to sit down and give thanks to God for the plenty and the peace and the prosperity that they have. All pots will be holiness. We ask God, don't we, today to bless the food, to bless us as we assemble before Him. Everybody's going to be doing that then. Every pot will be holiness. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see they're cooked therein, and in that day... There shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Eternal of Hosts. Does that mean that 
Gentiles would be banned from coming there? No, not at all. Paul explains that in Romans 11. But the Gentiles are going to be converted and grafted in, and spiritually speaking, everyone will be the same. Everyone will be the same. So what he's saying there is everybody is going to be being converted so that they become spiritual Israelites, not uh, spiritual Gentiles or those who are departed from God. All be spiritual Israelites. won't matter what the race is physically, but everyone will be there to worship God. So that's an exciting chapter, really, to me, uh, showing how this is all going to turn out. And now that we've looked at how it's going to turn out, let's go back and get a perspective of God's plan. Now, I went through uh, Leviticus 23 the other day and, and went through briefly, at least, each of the holy days with a brief explanation of what it meant. But let's back off even further. It's like looking at Google Earth. You might be zeroed in on a, a household that you've looked up somewhere, but then you back up and then you see the continent and then you see the world. So let's back up a little bit with our picture, and then we'll begin to narrow it down to today. But we need to see the larger picture first in order to fully comprehend the smaller picture that we are now entering. So, Numbers 14.34 is a good place to start. It gives some of the symbolism that God uses in the Scripture so that we might understand, and others might not. You know, Christ said He spoke in parables so they couldn't understand and wouldn't understand. The Protestants tell you He spoke in, in lovely pastoral parables so that they could easily understand the truth. That's not what Christ said. He said, I did that so they couldn't understand the truth. And he has symbolism throughout the Bible. Here in Numbers 14, 34, it says, After the number of the days in which you searched the land, remember the, uh, Caleb and Joshua and the others went in to search the land 40 days, even 40 days, each day for a year, shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and you shall know my breach of promise. So he says here, those 40 days are equal to the 40 years that you're now going to wander. So a day here is depicted as a year. You'll find the same thing. I won't turn there. We just went through it in a sermon recently in Ezekiel 4 and verse 6. Where remember Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days for Israel, for, uh, 40 years for Judah, a total of 430 years. And it says each one of those days represented a year. And we have since seen that since the establishment of Roanoke Colony uh, in North Carolina in 1780, I mean 1585, I guess it was, or was it 87? 87 might have been the final one. Anyway, it comes up to 430 days this year, 430 years. I guess it was 87 because that would be 17. 430 years, and that is what Ezekiel was talking about, was the 430 years that we would be in this country before we would be taken out of it and taken into captivity again, because that Judah and Jerusalem were in captivity, and, and he was to depict that to them. 
but it's for us. Now let's go to 2 Peter 3 and expand this just a little more. 2 Peter 3. I'll find it eventually. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now he's talking here in a prophetic sense about the end of the age, in the day of the Lord, if if you'll read on down to verse 10. That he's not slack concerning his promises, and that he counts a day as a thousand years. All right, how does that fit the plan? Well, we could go back to Leviticus 23, and what's the first holy day he mentions in Leviticus 23? The Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. He made the week seven days long. He could have made it nine days or four days. He could have made a week as long as he wanted, but he made it seven days. And Peter says that when you start calculating the end of the age and the day of the Lord, remember that a day is as a thousand years. So a week, a seven-day period, is a type of a 7,000-year time. Okay? If you're counting toward the day of the Lord and return of Christ, he's saying in that context, one day equals a thousand years. So how long has mankind been on the earth? Uh, Most scholars will say somewhere around 4000 B.C. was the time of creation. Uh, Some say 4025, some say 4004, 4006. I think the Jews are around 3700 and something, I forget. Uh, But they use different various means of calculating, and that's what they come up with. So mankind has been here approximately 4,000 years before Christ and then approximately 2,000 years since Christ. So that's roughly 6,000 years. In the millennium, we already know, he says that we'll live and reign with Christ there in uh, Revelation 20 and verse 4, a thousand years. And that Satan will be bound a thousand years before he's loosed for a little season. So we know the millennium is a thousand years long. So we've lived approximately 6,000 years on the earth. Then there will be peace for a thousand years. And that completes the week. Now we can go to Hebrews 4 and see that Paul understood this. Hebrews 4. He talks here in, in uh, 4 about how they were hardened, had their hearts hardened in the desert and so on and had to wander and die there. And they couldn't enter into the promised land because of unbelief in the last verse. Now here he's talking about entering into the kingdom of God. He uses the past in saying they could not enter in. And now he's saying you'd better do what you need to do so you can enter into the kingdom of God. So the subject here, then, is the kingdom of God, right? 
Let us therefore fear, verse 1, lest a promise being less left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, they weren't having trouble entering into the weekly Sabbath, were they? They did that every week. It was the millennial rest that he's talking about here that we need to enter into. It's what comes after the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles represents the Feast of Tabernacles, I mean the, uh, the Millennium. So that's what we should fear coming short of. And isn't the Sabbath a day of rest? So the weekly Sabbath is a day of rest. It represents a thousand years of rest, a millennial Sabbath. Then he talked how the gospel was preached, verse 4, For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. God did rest the seventh day from all his works. <coughs> and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. So it wasn't just the Sabbath rest, but a future rest of a thousand years. A thousand years representing a day, as Peter so clearly explains, the end time will be. <laughs> and then he talks about verse 9, there remains therefore a rest to the people of God in verse 9. Let us therefore label, uh, labor, verse 11, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So he's clearly showing here that there is a rest coming that we have not yet achieved and we could fail to get there. So, clearly uh, showing that the weekly Sabbath is a type of a rest to come, the same one that Peter was referring to when he said a thousand years as, as a day. Now, let's go from there to Luke 4. I've covered some of this fairly recently, but I want to put it together here a little bit uh, in an overview Here Christ is about to begin his ministry, and he stood in the Sabbath in chapter 4 of Luke, verse 16, uh, and stood up to read. And there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. I don't know whether he had asked for it, he probably had, because he had something specific he wanted to address here. So they gave him Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. That's Isaiah 61, verse 1. Uh, the Spirit of the Eternal is upon me, he's quoting from Isaiah 61, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, <coughs> he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. So he's speaking of a time that that was to happen. To preach the acceptable year of the eternal. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And they looked at him and he said in verse 21, he began to say to them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now he was a fulfillment of Isaiah 61, because he came to announce these things that he talked about here. He preached the gospel to the poor. He healed brokenhearted people. 
He preached deliverance to the captives, carnal captives of their own mind, if nothing else. And the recovering of sight to the blind, he healed many of them, and he healed the blindness of his disciples' spiritual eyes and those who followed him. And he set at liberty them that were bruised by the world and Satan and so on. But it was to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, when is the acceptable year? There has been nothing acceptable to God from the days of Adam and Eve until today. Can you name any year in man's history that would have been acceptable to God? No. The world has never repented. Israel has never really truly repented the whole nation. The whole world has never been in a condition that could be called acceptable to God. Now, when will the time begin that is acceptable to Him? Beginning of the millennium. When he is ruling, and everyone will follow him, and Satan will be bound, and that is the beginning or the acceptable time to God. Nothing is acceptable before that. So he's speaking of the Jubilee. The Jubilee was instituted to picture or represent liberty and freedom, prosperity and peace. Now, that was, was never fulfilled in the way that it is intended and won't be until the millennium starts. But every 50 years, if you had had someone who had wasted what he had, the land went back to the original family. And you couldn't buy land in that day. You could only lease it for a 50-year lease, 49-year lease actually is as long as you could do it, because it would go back to the original family after 49 years. Now, you could buy it within your family if you had control of it. That's what Jeremiah did. He went and purchased from his uncle that which was already family land. It didn't leave the family, and therefore it could be bought and sold. But if it left the family, it had to be returned to the family, so that was only a lease basis. We need to understand that. Because people here have said, well, we have to buy the land. It tells us there in Jeremiah to buy the land that we live on. No, you need to understand the Jubilee, and you need to understand that they can only buy and sell within their family. Otherwise, nothing but a lease. And if it was 20 years into the Jubilee cycle, you could only rent it for another 29 years because you knew it would be going back to the original family. So God set it up so that the Jubilee would represent prosperity, because if somebody was a fool and got rid of the family land through gambling debts or whatever, uh, it would go back to the family, and they would again have an opportunity at peace and prosperity. God set up a beautiful system. And that way you couldn't have these land moguls like Ted Turner who are sopping up millions of acres of land right now in this country and doesn't intend to ever give it back. Uh, but this prevented that. So, he's speaking here of the Jubilee. And this, according to the historians, occurred in 27 A.D. 27 A.D. Now, you want to know when creation was? 
There had been about 4,000 years from Adam and Eve up until this time. And if you count back in 50-year increments, 4,000 years, from 27 A.D., minus 4,000, you come up with 3973 B.C. as the day of creation. It's real simple. You don't have to study Egyptian genealogies and all kinds of stuff to try to figure out when it was. They know within a hundred years or so. But if you know God is precise, and He counts in 50-year increments, and a thousand years is a day, the four years, four days prior to Christ's saying, issuing this statement is 4,000 years, so just subtract. It's real easy. They argue whether you subtract or add a year going from B.C. to A.D. and A.D. to B.C., but uh, some scholars say that there's not a year there, and some say there is. So pick your mathematician. But if you just take 4,000 from 27 A.D., 39, 37 year would have been the year of creation. Or did I say 37? 3973. Uh, that's good enough for me. <laughs> you know, I, whether it was a year one way or the other, it doesn't really matter too much to me, so they can argue all they want about minus and plus B.C. to A.D. God is precise. That's the point. He is precise. And that's going to become more important to you and me when we consider the time after Christ said that instead of the time before he said it. Okay? You take that date, 27 A.D., and you add two days, that would be 2,000 years, because if you had four days, that's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, prior to Christ saying that. Then you have Thursday and Friday after that, 2,000 years from the time he said it until the Sabbath comes, seventh day. So, 2,000 years after he made that statement calling, saying that this is an announcement of the acceptable year of the Lord, looking forward, he was announcing that he was going to uh, announce in fall of 2027 the millennium, the acceptable year of the eternal. Now, that was a minor fulfillment of it because he had come and he was about to start his ministry at that time, and he would do those things himself on a very minor scale. A few blind healed. A few resurrected. A few would understand. But he's talking in a larger sense prophetically here of the time when all the blind and all the deaf and all the lame and all the dead will be resurrected. So it is a totally acceptable day of God as opposed to a partially acceptable which he himself fulfilled. So he's, he's making a statement of his ministry, but he's also been making a statement of his future ministry, which is by far and large greater than his original. The original was very limited. The end time one, when the millennium starts, will be unlimited, worldwide. And it would be two days away. So we've, from that time to 1,027, and from 1,027 to 2027 is 2,000 years. At the end of that 2,000 years starts the millennium, 
the seventh time, seventh day, the Sabbath, as Paul and Peter were talking about. Day of the Lord, Peter said, entering into the rest, as Paul said, it's all talking about the beginning of the millennium. And a day, Peter made it very clear, equals a thousand years. So from creation till the millennium is 6,000 years, and then we have a thousand-year period of rest, which is the Sabbath. Okay, now, that being the case, and God is precise... We need to know what's going to happen between now and 2027. This isn't a thousand years away now, is it? 2027 is about nine years from now. Ten, but probably less than that at this point. Until the millennium starts. Now, if Christ returns in the fall of 26 at the Feast of Trumpets, that makes it only nine years away until he comes to resurrect the first fruits. That's what I was driving at when I said nine years. <clears throat> then you got three and a half years of tribulation. Then you got nearly a year and a half of building Jerusalem. And then the temple has to be built before that. So this thing's got to get going pretty quick. Is that why we see violence escalating and earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes? Yes, it is. The time is drawing near. He says, when you see these things happen, you'll know that the time has arrived. There's nothing in Scripture that says we can't know the year. Nothing. It says you won't know the day or the hour. I think we can know the year because God has told us in the Scripture. Six thousand year periods followed by one thousand year period. And he proclaimed this. 27 A.D., just as his ministry was beginning. That was the beginning of his ministry. And then he died, and the church began in 31 A.D. After his ministry was done, and he had died and gone back to his Father in heaven. So that marks it as being pretty important, does it not? Now, let's add something to that. Something Herbert Armstrong recognized. Now, there were things he did not recognize because they did not pertain to him, and certain events had not occurred, so there was no way for him to put it together. But he did recognize that his work began 1,900 years after Christ made this proclamation. He began to be called and trained for the ministry in 1926 and 27, 1900 years after Christ had made that proclamation. Now, that was why he was so tied into 19-year cycles. 19 times 100 is 1900, and he recognized that 1900 years was significant. Now, if God began <clears throat> preparing Christ for his ministry in 26 A.D., and he actually began it then and announced the jubilee in the fall. He always announced it in atonement. So it would have been the fall of 27 when he announced the acceptable year of the Lord. So Herbert Armstrong was called precisely 20, I mean 1900 years later and was called and educated in 1926 and 27. Exactly 1900 years later. Now, 
do some simple math. If you have 2,000 years from Christ's proclamation until Christ declares the next millennium, how much time do we have left between now and then? From Herbert Armstrong in 1926 and 27 to 2026 and 27, representing Christ returning in 26 and the millennium beginning in 27. He has a year there to go cheer up his bride at the throne of God from the resurrection in 26 until the fall of 27. Now, whether it'll be exactly on the Feast of Trumpets, I do not know. But I think we know the year because this is so, this is so plain. It's so easy. There's nothing difficult about this. Here is the simplicity in Christ. All right, so there would be 100 years from 1926 and 1927 until this thing all wraps up. Now, what occurred during or has been occurring in that 100-year period? Because that's, that's the outer limit. That's the end of it, 100 years. Well, let's look at some parallels. Christ began the church, apparently, in 31 A.D. at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, there in Acts 2. And you fast forward through the New Testament, and you find that the apostles, having been trained, uh, were killed, most of them, uh, sometime in the next 70 years. The last man standing was the Apostle John at approximately... Uh, 96, 97 A.D., about 70 years later. We don't know exactly when he died, but it was somewhere right in that range. So the early New Testament church lasted about 70 years, and then it, was, it disappeared. It was gone. Nobody could find it. The Catholic Church rose out of the ashes of it through Simon Magus, who tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter, and he told him to go to hell with his money. Uh, so, the church lasted about 70 years. All right, let's move forward. Herbert Armstrong began being called and worked with 26, 27, 19. And 70 years later, the church had basically disappeared. 1996, 1997, 70 years later, basically gone had changed its name to some evangelical something, had disappeared. It was no longer called Worldwide Church of God. That which was left was just little groups and splinters here and there, and a few bigger pieces of vomit, but mostly spewed. Uh, Revelation 3 shows that he would do that. So he spewed the church out at the end. And the similarity is there between the early New Testament church and the end-time church. But Herbert Armstrong did not finish the end-time work. Still got 30 years to deal with. From the time Worldwide basically disappeared in 1996, we got to come to 2026. There's 30 years. Now, what, what has to happen during that 30 years? Now we're getting down to questions we need to ask. We're still here. We're still alive. Church disappeared about 1996, 97, right in that neighborhood. All right. 
something else had to be done because that church was gone. Now, with this much background, I'm going to interject something else before I start into what happens those next 30 years. Let's go back to Ezekiel 16. With this background, let's understand what he calls there a parable and a riddle. Now, Christ spoke in parables so that they could not understand. And then on top of that, you have a riddle as well. It's both. That makes it doubly hard to understand. Now, 17 comes after 16. In 16 of Ezekiel, God describes Israel as the great whore, just as he describes her as the great whore in Revelation 18. So, the timing here is of the end time, the great whore that's going to be destroyed, Israel, at the end of the age. Okay? And the New Testament church would be extant at the time that Israel had become the great whore of Revelation. So, we've established a time period there of when Israel has become the greatest whore on earth in chapter 16. Let's go to 17. And the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So this would be hard to be understood, and scholars and commentators have tried to write it up, and they utterly fail because they have no clue. <laughs> they don't know what's going on in the church today. <clears throat> so there is a comparison to Nebuchadnezzar, so they use that and they try to start some kind of a historical narrative about when this was fulfilled and, and try to understand it. But that doesn't work because Ezekiel is an end-time prophecy and Israel has just now become the greatest whore that has ever lived on the face of the earth, whoring with the other nations and not turning to God to whom they were to be faithful. He was their God but they've gotten false gods and idols and have departed entirely from God. That's the nation we look at here today and of northwestern Europe and wherever Israel is. So let's understand the timing in that context and say, Thus says the eternal God, A great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, <clears throat> which had different colors, came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, an eagle is depicted, of course, as a large bird. Uh, there are parallels between an eagle and Israel. Look at some of the coins from the United States of America, and you'll see an eagle on one side. It's even called some of the silver and gold coins, American eagles. So, an eagle represents, in this particular context, uh, a smaller group. We're talking spiritual here. A spiritual eagle as opposed to the physical, the whole nation. Now, see if this fits as we go through here. Herbert Armstrong was a leader God appointed to start the end time movement 100 years before Christ would return and the millennium would begin. Now, you can go back <clears throat> from the Apostle John all the way forward 
And in history, you cannot find a movement that is clearly a man called of God to preach the gospel, to convert people, and to have a religious movement toward God in the way that Herbert Armstrong was in 1926 and 27. The others don't even have the truth, right? Methodists, Baptists, Mormons, whoever, Catholics, Hindus, they don't know God. So he's the first man that we can spot from the Apostle John until today that was given that kind of calling. So in that sense, he was a leader or an eagle for spiritual Israel. And it was great wings. It went worldwide, didn't it? Called Worldwide Church of God. So long-winged, <coughs> full of feathers, a lot of people. Didn't Christ say, many will be called, few chosen? So when he speaks of many being called, there were ultimately about 150,000 who kept the Feast of Tabernacles at any one time. Now, there are people who have been in the church who have died and so on, but just using that number, that's, that's about the size that it grew to. So, full of feathers, lots of people. Uh, well, when they, the pilgrims came over, there were a few who kept the Sabbath and kept the holy days. But it was just a few. It wasn't, I mean, a few boatloads and a few of them were keeping elements of the truth. But here we had a lot of people, by comparison, full of feathers, which had different colors. Well, in a worldwide work, you have all colors of people. We had people in the church in Africa and in Asia and uh, South America and here, everywhere, all over the world, you had members of Worldwide Church of God. So, all colors. They came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, Lebanon is typical of uh, an area of Israel that had huge cedar trees. The word means white. Uh, you have the white cliffs of Zion here in the uh, Grand Staircase National Monument. Mount Zion itself is in the white strata. So, they came to Lebanon, the White Mountains, right here, in southern Utah. That's what this is talking about. In the highest branch of the cedar. Well, we have lots of cedars here. Junipers, cedars. Uh, Herbert Armstrong had on the campus in Pasadena these huge cedar trees, and he loved to talk about them. He called them the cedars of Lebanon because they were had been planted there by the people that owned those mansions in previous years. Uh, I think from the country of Lebanon in the Middle East. Of course, he still thought every, the Promised Land, everything was in the Middle East. So he was he would on campus tours, which he used to take before he got older. He would point out the cedars of Lebanon, and I think it's ironic that he never really examined Ezekiel 17 in the light that we're looking at it today, and yet he recognized the importance of cedars of Lebanon. Just a little physical thing there. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. Now, Oregon and Northern California have huge cedar trees. Now, I don't know whether those on the campus came from up there or whether they came from the Middle East or just where they came from for sure, 
But they have huge cedar trees up there, not like these little things we've got around here. So, he started where? He started in Oregon, having come from Iowa and Illinois earlier. So, God called him, though, when he was in Oregon. And he carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. What's L.A.? It's a city of merchants. It has a huge harbor. It's a land of much traffic. Uh, planes go there as a hub before they go to the rest of the world. So Pasadena is where God started the end-time, 100-year work of the church. In the southwestern United States, not northwest, he moved it from there, and it grew into a worldwide work in the southwestern United States. Where is your body parked today? In the southwestern United States. Not in a land of traffic and much merchants, but in a wilderness area of the southwestern United States, because Micah 4 said, we're not going to the city to do this next phase of the work, we're going to the wilderness. But in the southwest. Now, God knew all along what was in the Southwest. You didn't, I didn't, and Herder Armstrong didn't. But the world will soon know that this was the original promised land in this area. And that's where God began the end-time spiritual work with southwestern U.S. It needed to be in a big city uh, for broadcast reasons and so on, but... Things are going to get a lot tougher here at the end. They won't have the relative peace that Herbert Armstrong knew. So God's removed his people out into the wilderness. And that this is where they're going to gather, is out here in the wilderness. You may not believe me. I don't care. It's going to happen. And then you'll know. <laughs> As Gloria's husband said, it was a nice presentation, implying that I don't buy it. I'm fine with that. That doesn't upset me in the least. He wanted to see, he saw. And having seen, when all this happens, he'll say, Oh, I knew that. <laughs> I've seen that. <clears throat> if he's still alive, and he very well might be, because I think this is getting real close now. Okay? Let's not get too, too sidetracked. So, he set that in the city of merchants. Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God were in Pasadena, California, in the L.A. Basin. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. And it grew. Now, great waters in a fruitful field here don't mean uh, physically. He's speaking spiritually. Christ is the good waters, the living waters. He is the fruitful field. So he had revealed himself to Herbert Armstrong, so we had fruitful doctrine and the Holy Spirit, the living waters of Christ. And that caused it to grow. He set it as a willow tree. A willow tree takes a lot of water. So Christ had to pour out his spirit of living water on Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God in order to cause it to grow into a tree. And it grew. Now, he set it in a place like you would set a willow tree. But notice how it grew. 
And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Now, it was in a land of cedars, big trees. It was planted like a willow that grows in good water and becomes a tree, but it didn't become a great tree. What did it become? Let's read. A spreading vine of low stature whose branches turned toward him, and the roots thereof were under him, so it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. <laughs> Where did the attention of Worldwide Church of God turn, I asked you? It turned to a human figure coming off and on a G4. It turned into a vine turned toward Herbert Armstrong more than toward God. So it could not grow into a stately tree. Its roots were under him. There's one of the major branches of it today that still, on their broadcast, about all they talk about is Herbert Armstrong. They don't preach the gospel. It's very rarely mention the Bible. It's all about Herbert Armstrong. There's more than one of those. So, the focus became him. Any reason why God, the Creator, would spew that out of his mouth? Because the focus was more on Armstrong than God. Sorry, but that was truth. That's what it says here. Now, it did bring forth branches and sprigs. It became a worldwide work, and many people were called there. I'm not saying it wasn't the work of God. It was. But it became something that God had not intended to become. It, be, it paid more attention to him than it did to God. Now, God was mentioned, and God was preached. Don't get me wrong. But... We saw an awful lot of the name Herbert Armstrong spread around the world and visiting with kings and all kinds of stuff like that. Now, this is in my memory bank. Some of you are young enough, you don't even know. You know, you can't, you can't visualize what I can because you weren't there and didn't see it. I understand that. And that's one reason I'm trying to go through this in detail so that you get a bit of history of what has occurred so you get a firmer grip on what is now occurring and is about to occur. Because it all ties together in a neat 100-year package, as we're going to see. So when I read this and apply it to the work under Herbert Armstrong, you don't have a memory bank that knows that. So I'm trying to say this is what occurred. You can go back and look at videos from back then. If you, you can find them on the Internet, and you'll see Herbert Armstrong's name emblazoned everywhere. Okay? So, roots were under him, and it became a vine instead of a tree. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine, the same vine, who came after Herbert Armstrong? Joe Koch, Sr., same vine, this vine. He also uh, was over a large work, the same great eagle, with great wings. The, the spread still spread around the earth, but now instead of it being under Herbert Armstrong, it was a vine under Joseph the Koch. And where did that vine bend her roots? 
toward him. He proclaimed himself. Now, Herbert Armstrong did not ask for that acclaim. When he would come, and people would start cheering and applauding like they did, he would say, quieten it down. He tried not to be the center of attention, because I believe he was a man of God. When Joe DeCotch came, and people began to applaud and cheer, he would go the other way. Let's hear more of it. I saw it with my own eyes. Anchorage, Alaska. Cheer all you want. Was that humility? Now, Herbert Armstrong showed some humility. Joe DeCotch never did. I knew the man personally pretty well. <clears throat> anyway, they turned toward him and shot forth their branches toward him. They weren't shooting forth around the world anymore. They were shooting toward him. He became the big hit. That he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. Now, the living waters had been there under Herbert Armstrong. The truth was there. So now, he's dead, and they begin to turn toward Joe Koch, and he encourages it. Turn to me. I'm, I'm the big leader here now. And the branches toward, turn toward him that he might water it. <coughs> Did he? Herbert Armstrong watered it. Gave it good doctrine. Gave it the truth. All right, let's go on and see if this fits Joe Koch. It was planted in a good soil by great waters, that it might bring forth branches, and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. So God accepted that it was a vine, not a tree. But he said it did have good doctrine, great waters, good doctrine was there. And that it might continue to grow and bear fruit. Did it? What happened to it? Let's read on. Say you, thus says the eternal God, shall it prosper? Is it going to grow like Joe said? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof that it wither? What began to happen? It began to wither and get smaller and die. It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring. Even without great power are many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. Nobody tore it apart. Nobody poisoned it and killed it. Nobody got huge machinery and jerked it out of the ground. That just began to wither. It began to die. It didn't take a lot of people to do it. A few Takachas and their henchmen. <laughs> That's all it took to destroy it. Not many people. <clears throat> yes, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind touches it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. It came apart right there in Pasadena. It began selling off buildings and selling off the auditorium and selling off the Hall of Administration. Right where it had started and flourished, it dried up and died. Then they moved it. And then they changed its name, and it didn't exist any longer. It wasn't the truth anymore. The living waters, the great doctrine, <coughs> the fruitful field, had been removed. 
we've gone back to Protestantism. Sunday worship, pagan holidays, not keeping the feast. Well, nominally, if you really wanted to, you still could, sort of. But the church wasn't backing it. <laughs> Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, What time is it, Mary? Say now to the rebellious house, it had become rebellious against God. Joe Koch told Herbert Armstrong, if you make me the leader, he says, I'll walk in your footsteps. I'll walk in your shoes. I'll follow exactly where you went. He swore on a stack of Bibles, if you will. Not literally, but would you get the drift? I'll do exactly as you did. No, he went the other way. Went right back to Protestantism. A rebellious house. Know you not what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem and has taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. Joe Koch and the leaders that stayed with him took it right back to the Babylonian system. Nimrod and Semiramis and Sunday worship and the whole bit. Rebelled against God. Took it right back to Babylon. If you read Zechariah 5, which we'll get to, it says two unclean birds, Tukach 1 and Tukach 2, would have lead thrown into the bushel basket and shut its mouth, but they would set it up on its base in Babylon. Well, shortly after Tukach took over, its mouth was shut and it got moved back to Babylon. Zechariah 5 ties directly with Ezekiel 17. (coughs) Now, what else did he do? He had taken of the king's seed. Herbert Armstrong is referred to as the king in Micah 4. Our king is dead. Our counselor has perished. He died. Then we were to go to the wilderness, right below that. So, Joe had taken the king's seed, that which had been produced under Herbert Armstrong, and made a covenant with him, and has taken an oath of him. He hath also taken the mighty of the land. Now, I was getting ahead of myself. He did take an oath of Herbert Armstrong and say, I will follow in your footsteps. He also took a lot of the evangelists that were in the church and the top leaders of the church with him into Babylon. That the kingdom might be base that it might not lift itself up, that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. If he'd kept his covenant, it would have survived. He didn't keep his covenant or his oath to Herbert Armstrong, and it died. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt, into the world, into sin. He started sending them, and they tried to get me to do it, because I was in Southern California pastoring churches at the time, to these various Protestant seminaries to be re-educated in true religion. Fuller Theological Seminary, among others. Literally, that's what the Koch and those guys, when Herbert Armstrong was still alive, was having the ministers go to Protestant seminaries. That's Babylonian pagan right there. Seminaries where semen is deposited. All goes back to sex worship and uh, Nimrod and Semiramis. Same old stuff that they might give him horses. He he wanted men that could ride on horses and do spiritual battle with Protestantism. And much people, 
Well, he thought he was going to grow. He thought the church would grow. If I just get these ministers trained right, this church is going to grow. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that does such things? That Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? He broke the covenant with Herbert Armstrong. Was he going to be delivered now? <laughs> As I live, I'm swearing on myself, says God. Says the eternal God, Surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, announced him as his successor, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon, L.A., he shall die. So right there in a Babylonian city, Herbert Armstrong died and Joe Koch died also of cancer. After making some proclamation, I, I can't remember. Pat, do you remember what he said? He said something about, about not keeping the Sabbath, He was promoting himself, that's true. And I don't remember the exact quote about how he was going to live or something. Oh yeah, the Sabbath wasn't a sign of God's people. And yet, Exodus says it is. But anyway, <clears throat> he came down with cancer and died shortly thereafter after making that proclamation. I wish I could remember the exact quote. It was a very short time. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him uh, in the war by casting up thousands and building forts to cut off many people. So he thought he was going to grow and everything was going to go great and the world would accept him. And the, But it didn't happen. The world didn't fight for the church. In fact, they looked at that evangelical movement of the former worldwide church of God as kind of a red-headed stepchild. They did, it did not, the world's churches did not accept it with open arms. And many people were cut off. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when lo, he had given his hand. He had shaken hands and agreed to follow Herbert Armstrong. And he has done all these things, he shall not escape. And he didn't, he died. <laughs> Therefore, thus says the eternal God, as I live... Surely my oath he has despised, and my covenant that he has broken, even it will I recompense upon his head. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass, that he trespassed against me. Now all his fugitives, with all his bands, shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds, and you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. Was the church then spewed out and scattered to all winds? Yes, it was. Those fugitives who went with the rebel were scattered, and so were those who had also been rebellious, even though they didn't follow the Tkachis. We all turned too much to Herbert Armstrong and not enough to God. And I think that those last three verses are talking also of Joe Jr., who followed in his father's footsteps and also despised the covenant. And he would not be saved either. His dad died up there in verse, seven, verse 16. This is Joe Jr. down here, I think, that he would fail as well. And it would be scattered. And they fell by the spiritual sword. And now that they're out there in the world, the physical sword's about to come. They'll be physically slain by that. 
I'm about to wrap this up now. Don't despair. Now, what's God going to do? Now, that occupied up till about 96, 97. What's God going to do? Because it's getting shorter. <laughs> you know, that hundred years is, is getting shorter. <clears throat> Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar. Now, you're going to start with that vine and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So God, out of what was left, is going to take somehow the best of what was and set it up on a high mountain and imminent. This is going to be something that is going to be seen. This is something that the world will see and will recognize and understand once it happens. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. Count the towers of Zion. The high mountains of Zion. That's where it's going to be planted. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. It won't become a vine. It will be a cedar. Now we'll see a comparison in the book of Haggai where he says, how do you compare the former temple with the latter? Is it as nothing? One was a vine spread low under Herbert Armstrong. This will be a tree under Christ. It'll have physical leaders, but it will be a tree. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadows of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So he's going to gather his 10%, as we shall see, uh, to Zion to do his end-time work. And it will eclipse what worldwide was by far. Not necessarily in numbers, but in stature and in growth and in doctrine and living waters in the Spirit of God. There will be no comparison what God gets through. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So he says, that which was and became dry and dead, from it I will bring forth a sprig that I will work with to finish out the hundred years. 233. We shall continue.